me for being late because they think I'm the blackest one. And they Pascal, think that you're changing your clothes. Pascal is lighter than me, so it's true. It's, it's light skin privilege. <laughs> Pascal used light skin privilege to be 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 tardy to the party. That's what we're gonna say. That is. is the official excuse, and have that be the press release. Mm-hmm. Pascal Robert uses light skin privilege. Good evening, everyone. I'm your host, Jason Miles, and welcome to another episode of This is Revolution Podcast. Thank you all for your patience. We're having a very interesting behind-the-curtain conversation. Pascal Robert flexed his light skin privilege. That's what this was. This is Pascal's fault. Blaming him. All of his light-skinnedness. But we have a spicy one for you tonight. Joining us again is the one and only Norm Finkelstein. Always a good time when Norm is on. Always a deep discussion. Uh, reading his book, I was excited to read actual conversations we had on this very program. But before we start, if you're new to the channel, please hit subscribe. And don't forget to hit that notification bell so you're alerted whenever we go live. We're constantly adding cross streams with other channels and adding new shows. Speaking of new shows... light-skinned boy wonder pascal robert informed me yesterday that he will be teaming up with another friend of show jeff kennedy and adding a new show friday morning called frat guy fridays it'll start this friday i'm very excited about that launch also if you want to get a glimpse of what you're going to get on frat guy friday uh pascal just appeared recently on black power media this past sunday go check that out wherever you are watching or listening to the show there should be links in the description to that appearance also the wonderful moderator extraordinaire in tucson will be dropping it in the chat hello hello thank you i will that uh, that lovely voice that you hear is the producer moderator voice faceless voice of reason m tucson Thank you. Good to be here. Good to be here. <laughs> Good to be. 
Finally, my current column in Sublation Magazine is up, Virtual Insanity, a freak show for left media. We discussed it a little bit on Saturday. If you get some time, check that out. Share and discuss with your people. Leave a comment in the Sublation Twitter because Doug Lane loves Twitter. He loves it too much. It's kind of sick. Also, if you guys are enjoying what we do here on TIR, we'd like to have access to the Champagne Room. Uh, and patron-only events like our upcoming movie night. There's only one way to become a patron for as little as $3 a month, $30 for the year. It can all be yours. That being said, let's bring in the crew. Let's bring in the man who has a new show coming out on Friday. The Pascal Robert. I'm 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 officially putting you in the pantheon of light skinned Negroes, Pascal. I don't understand how I'm light skinned. I'm thoroughly paperback brown over here, man. I, I don't know. I you know what? When you sleep, I do paper bag tests on you in Florida. And when did and I become more everyone. like when did I become more like complexion than you? You have a tan. You live in Mexico. That's the only uh, you know, you live you in Florida. You live in Miami. You yeah, are in Miami. You but, should be, as you put it, crispy. And you're not. You no, uh, I, I don't leave the house. <laughs> you, you know what it no, is? No, he doesn't. When you do leave the house, uh, Cisco Jr., you're you're slathering up sunscreen because you don't want to darken yourself up and lower your credit score. That's really what it's about. I have no idea. I've never been called light-skinned in my life. Pascal has a parasol. <laughs> no one has ever, ever in life called me light skinned. A parasol. I don't know how you are. You are the same complexion I am. You got a tan. You calling me light skinned? Look, look, Pascal. Wesley Snipes, chocolate brothers like myself have been Wesley dealing with light skinned people like you our whole lives. Bro, you have to put a whole lot of blackface on for you to look like Wesley Snipes. <laughs> <laughs> Pascal with a parasol. Whoever draws the pictures of like Cuba as Tintin, if someone can get a picture of Pascal with a parasol strolling down the Florida beaches, drinking mint julep, <laughs> drinking mint juleps <laughs> like a plantation owner. <laughs> Look at that. Jamal, Jamal, bring me the roses. Wonderful day here in this beautiful brown metropolis. (laughs) That's how Pascal talks when he's in Florida. Well, we all read, probably not all of Norm's book. I think it's the longest book that Sublation will probably uh, print for a while clocked in at what 536 pages bible Bible length (laughs) well his latest book is a scathing indictment of what was once called pc or political correctness and intersectionality as well as calling out some academic charlatans some of the same ones we've discussed with enthusiastic disdain as well. His book was passed on by every left publisher because of its fiery content until Doug Lane's sublation took it on. A quote from the book. 
But to be effective, cancel culture doesn't require such credites as a blacklist. On the contrary, it's more often than not affected with grace and a plume. Professor Noam Chomsky popularized the phrase manufacturing consent to denote the mechanisms by which incongruous facts and opinions are filtered out in an ostensibly democratic society. His theoretical account was in some sense autobiographical. For decades, he himself was the most effectively canceled intellectual in the United States, even as he was in possession of a most remarkable mind. And even as his intellectual output was prestigious, anti-war clergyman William Sloan Coffin once rude, Chomsky writes books faster than I can read them. His publications were ignored. He never appeared on news programs and his opinions were never solicited. Chomsky's worst transgression was criticizing Israel. The New York Times Sun uh, Day Book Review was the preeminent arbiter of literary taste. A favorable review made a book, an unfavorable one killed it. When Chomsky published his first book on the Israel-Palestine conflict, Peace in the Middle East, question mark, in 1974, the Times recruited Michael Walzer, one of the signatories on the now famous Herper's Letter, deploring cancel culture, to cancel Chomsky. Were it not for the place he has made for himself on the American left, Walter informed readers, I doubt that any publisher would have accepted these articles in their present form. In other words, this book and its author's opinions could be safely ignored. And so they were. When Chomsky later published his searing indictment, Fateful Triangle, the United States, Israel, and the Palestinians, 1983, it was such a hushed affair that hardly a U.S. periodical noticed it. Along the way, Chomsky was tarred with the canceling epithets, Holocaust denier and self-hating Jew. One signatory to the Harper's letter, Barry Weiss, was, until her flamboyant departure from the Times editorial page, the reigning queen of cancel culture as she promiscuously hurled the epithets anti-Semite at any and all of Israel's critics. If the Times recruited Weiss, it wasn't because of her gifts, which, judging from her over fell squarely on the deficit side of the ledger. Rather, it was to throw a bone to its readership base of Jewish billionaires on the Upper East Side of Manhattan who, unlike millennial Jews, still swore by their holy state. Please welcome friend of show, friend in real life, wonderful human. He's actually a lot nicer in person. If you guys think he's harsh you see him on these shows yelling at people he's very friendly in person Tucson you met Norm right I met Norm very briefly he asked me where the bathroom was and I showed him where it was and I was so excited that was the highlight of my day <laughs> please welcome <laughs> he's, is he the most cancelled man in America well not today please welcome Norm Finkelstein Thank you for having me. Bring him you didn't mention the occasion where I asked you where the bathroom was, and I don't think I want to know. <laughs> <laughs> it's the highlight of my day. I'll take it. <laughs> Norm, Norm snuck it into must, the event real cool. A very uneventful day. That that was a that was a fun day. So I don't know if you remember the launch party we did last summer and uh, for Sublation in uh, in New York. Yeah, yeah. 
and I would describe Toussaint to you, but since we try to keep her a, a wonderful little chocolate secret here on the show, I will not. Uh, we'll wait till after the show and she'll tell you. Uh, I don't know these milieus at all. I'm being honest with you. There's such a huge uh, age gap, generation gap, uh, and it's very, very alien and frankly disorienting to me. This past weekend, I was asked to do a book reading at this magazine called Mars Review. Are you mm-hmm. familiar with it? Uh, uh, I don't know. Pascal, do you know Mars Review? Not familiar at all. Okay. One of the interesting things, I don't want to get lost in tangents, which I have a tendency to, but the in the terms of culture right now, we, we're, at, we're in a, a model of what you might call competitive capitalism, where you have just these tiny units, a Mars Review here, a compact magazine here, the drift there. There are 10,000 little units out there. It's like the era of competitive capitalism. And oddly enough, in my era, it was the era of monopoly capitalism, which is to say in cultural cultural affairs, you had very defined precincts. You had the so-called left, Descent magazine, uh, the Nation magazine, you had the center liberals like New Republic and uh, New York Review of Books. And then you had the right wing commentary magazine. But it was like just like like monopoly capitalism. There are five, six or seven units, very defined. And everybody was in one stream or the other. Now, nobody even knows each other. Like you don't know Mars Review. Mars Review doesn't know this and that and the other. It's a very uh, for me, it's a very unusual uh, cultural scene right now because there's no dominant force. There's no, as it were, hegemonic cultural forces uh, in your I generation. Do you think that's uh, because of the internet? Yeah, I think it's two things. One is the internet, and the other thing is the, uh, in the once uh, when Trump was elected, Nancy Pelosi made the fateful decision to join the resistance. The the center disappeared. The Times is now just a tabloid. It's a woke tabloid. It wasn't that in my day. Now I'm not saying the Times didn't have its agenda, but there was a pretense. You know, the Times in my day was called the newspaper of record, and part of it being the newspaper of record was you had to have preserve a certain kind of dignity. And right now, the Times has completely uh, uh, jettisoned any pretense of being a newspaper of record. It's now the organ of the woke wing of the Democratic Party, or really of the whole Democratic Party. So with the collapsing of that broad defined center, there's now been a lot of room opened up for all sorts of magazines and journals uh, and obviously web-based uh, journalism uh, to command an audience. Uh, but I was just, uh, I mentioned that as a backdrop. So I was invited to speak at the Mars Review. They were having an event at West, uh, around Washington Square in uh, Manhattan near NYU. And I have to say, and I don't want this to sound wrong, but I was really, I felt very ill at ease. First of all, it was solidly white. When I say solidly white, 
I mean, there were only two non-white people in a room of about a hundred. Mm-hmm. Secondly, even though they dressed, so to speak, shabbily, you had a feeling of wealth there. These people uh, were graduates of the Ivy League or roughly in that tier. And thirdly, and I know this is going to sound very harsh, there was a lot of, a lot, there was readings from the current issue, and I'm in the current issue of the Mars with you. It was so saturated with sex, kinky sex, wild sex. There's an expression, I don't know if they coined it or whether it's a commonplace in your generation. The expression is gooning, G-O-O-N-I-N-G. Grooming or gooning? Gooning, G-O-O-N-I-N-G. It means basically uh, being transfixed with porn, video porn, for like 24, 48 hours straight. Uh, Straight's the right word there. Uh, (laughs) and, and, And it struck me, now I know this is gonna sound harsh, but it struck me that even though this crowd considered itself bohemian, and even though this crowd considered itself, um, uh, uh, what would you say, uh, uh, anti-establishment, it struck me this was exactly the crowd that would go over to fascism. Mm. It, it had that feel of not, of, even though they considered themselves anti-establishment, it had that kind of uncomfortable feeling of these folks if the moment of truth of truth arises or arrives they're going to go over to the fascist site and is this uh, the mars the mars review of books is that what you're talking yeah, about yes the mars review of books yeah i just looked them up and uh, they said the mars review of books is a magazine in print and on urbit which combines ruthlessly intelligent and fearless sense-making on subjects of global importance with today's most stylish, belletristic writing on contemporary arts and culture. And I'll be very intellectually honest, I had to look up the word belletristic. It sounds like a goon to me, man. It sounds like goons to me. I I felt very uncomfortable, and it, it told me two things. It told me, number one, things are very much in flux, but told me, secondly, the left has to get its act together. We're headed towards very, I don't want to sound like a Cassandra, but we're headed towards very, very tough times. And unless there is a counterforce, we're headed towards a real disaster. Uh, And I felt as if, you know, unless our side gets its act together, uh, there's going to be a very there's a very big problem uh, uh, up ahead. I, I do want to pivot from gooning for just a second, just a uh, second. Uh, you know, because anything over five minutes, too much gooning. I want to talk about your book, mm-hmm. um, which I'm really glad I picked up. Uh, your pen spared no fools with this book. I'm not going to lie and say I finished it. But I'm enjoying what I'm reading. 
you are tap dancing on landmines with this book, much like you did in our first appearance on the show, an appearance that Glenn Greenwald said was one of the most important conversations he's ever heard. Mainly because of a major section of the show that discussed gender, that is an area many people choose to stay away from because of the feared cancellation, if you will. Now, on this show, we don't say Karen or cancel culture. Not because we don't think they exist, but not in the way it's phrased. People want to, as we say, talk to the manager. Uh, we are in a moment, as you write in your book, it's not new, a sense of entitlement that anything you don't like to hear is oppressive and requires you to have uh, a superior punishment for your verbal crime. Is there nothing that speaks to neoliberalism more, Norm, than the I want to talk to the manager culture, or as you call it, cancel culture in your book? Well, I say at the very beginning of the book, I think I begin by saying, what's new about cancel culture? Mm -hmm. and I say not much, but more than often meets the eye. And I think that since uh, many people have put the emphasis on the continuities between, say, PC political correctness of my generation and the current cancel culture, I think I ought also, for the benefit of your audience, to stress the discontinuity. And the, the key discontinuity, in my opinion, is, uh, I'm not sure how old you guys are, but during the era of PC, political correctness, it was a pretty marginal phenomenon. As a matter of fact, the very term political correctness was coined by leftists who were mocking their own political correctness. And uh, it exercised very little, it had very little influence, it had a very small impact, certainly on public life. And the only place where it really existed was in universities, campuses. Uh, even there, it had a very marginal impact. The big difference with cancel, uh, cancel culture is, cancel culture has leveraged identity politics and it's leveraged identity politics basically in my opinion for three reasons number one the democratic party needs to fill the void at its base because large numbers of white workers uh became alienated from the democratic party or for one of or for whatever reason they drifted over to the republican party so the, the democratic party needed a base and it decided it would create a base from various minority groups, various uh, sexual minorities, ethnic minorities, um, and so forth. Secondly, the Democratic Party had a problem in its base, and that problem had a very straightforward name. It was called Bernie Sanders. And Bernie Sanders was trying to mobilize the base of the De Democratic Party to create a class-based uh, a class-based uh, movement. And that class-based movement, I think it's often forgotten, even though it's a short time ago, that class-based party movement came pretty close to winning. As I'm sure you guys will remember, up until South Carolina, it looked like Bernie was going to win. People like James Carville were having heart seizure on, <laughs> on TV. At this Chris time. Matthews said Bernie Sanders was going to uh, was it going to execute everybody? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Chris Matthews. Yeah. Uh, so uh, I think he said in Central Park or in Times. Yeah, uh, yeah. Really, really <laughs> you know, Bernie was the nightmare scenario. So 
they needed this identity politics to derail, uh, to dislocate, uh, to destroy the Bernie movement. And at that moment, what you might call the moment of truth, uh, all of the identity politics uh, icons, the Angela Davis, the Ta-Nehisi Coates, the Whoopi Goldberg, the Joy Reid, they all joined in attacking Bernie for being, as Ta-Nehisi Coates called it, weak on the reparations question, as uh, uh, Angela Davis called it, weak on the uh, black question, as Joy Reid did. She brought in a body language reader to prove yeah. that Bernie was a congenital liar. And then there was Kimberly Crenshaw, who said that all the real action is occurring over at Amazon with Jeff Bezos, you know, having a special day in recognition of Black, uh, Black Lives Matter, and that the real revolution, she said, is not having, is not, and I'm not paraphrasing her, it's not these um, old white Jewish schmucks like Bernie, it's the corporations. And if you look down the line, at that moment of truth, it was the identity politics which was weaponized in order to stop Bernie. And the third function of identity politics is to give a kind of progressive or radical sheen, surface veneer, to a politics which requires no sacrifice. There's no, you know, in my generation, one of the reasons we revered people like Paul Robeson or somebody like W.E.B. Du Bois is because they didn't just walk, talk the talk, they walked the walk. And when the moment of truth came, Robeson was willing to accept the explosion of his career or the shattering of his career. He famously told the McCarthy uh, inquisitors, he said, I will not retreat 1,000th part of one inch. The boys, when he was 80 years old, he was led in handcuffs, which you can imagine what a mortifying experience it must have been to him. He was led in handcuffs into the courthouse because of his alleged sympathies for the Soviet Union. So when we thought about when we thought about radical politics, we thought we thought about people sacrificing their lives, sacrificing their careers sacrificing everything, everything for the cause, for the belief. And nowadays, what's, what, what is radical politics? You know what radical politics is? When Judith Butler announces that she's changing her pronouns, that's, that's a big headline getter in the web. In 2020, Judith Butler announced that she's gonna henceforth be referred to as they, them. That's what radical politics is. What happened to Angela Davis? You know, say what you want about Angela. Number one, she was a brilliant young woman. Number two, she stood by her beliefs, her convictions. And number three, she had real raw physical courage. I mean, she was in jail for a long, for about, I think, 18 months at the women's house for detention. Uh, agree with her politics or not, you have to respect her. So in that era, Angela Davis, I don't want to call her Angela anymore because I feel it's disrespectful because I don't even feel for her as a comrade anymore. 
But in that era, you know, Angela Davis was on the FBI's 10 most wanted list. And now she's on Martha Vin Martha's Vineyard's five most coveted list. When you see the people she appears with, you, you yourself look. When she's at the University of South Carolina, she's giving a, a talk there. Who is she introduced by? The second richest person in South Carolina, a billionaire's billionaire, happens to be a woman. And this woman gets up and only half jokingly, half jokingly, she says, me and Angela, we have a lot in common. You know, me and Angela, we have a lot in common. That's what identity politics has become. It's this completely fake pretense of being radical, but radical whereby you get to have your cake and eat it. Nobody has to sacrifice their wealth. Nobody has to sacrifice their privilege. All you have to do is have on your program some trans person and you're radical. You know, so that to me is what identity politics is. I don't look at it from like its intellectual genesis. I don't much care if it's Foucault or it's Heidegger or it's Deleuze. Or I don't give a flying fig. You know, for me, it's a political issue. And politically, it's wholly reactionary. It has no redemptive core to it. It's simply a weapon. And for those who are the beneficiaries, the Ta-Nehisi uh, Coates, the Ibram X. Kendi's, um, it's a great racket. I mean, it's a very lucrative racket. I read this uh, yesterday that Nicole, what's her full name? You told it to me earlier before the program from the New York Times. Nicole Hannah-Jones. Yeah, Nicole Hannah-Jones. Yes. Last year, she made a, a million dollars in college appearances. Ibram X. Kendi, he got $10 million from Jack Dorsey, uh, the former CEO of Twitter. You know why they get all the money? You know why? These are insurance policies. They're life insurance policies. That's why Jeff Bezos, he gave Van Jones um, $100 million. He gave uh, Obama $100 million. You know why? Because... Bezos knows there's going to be a moment of truth at Amazon at some point. And we can be certain on which side Mr. Obama and Mr. Van Jones are going to be when that moment of truth comes. These are life insurance policies for the rich. And one of the unusual things, because times have changed in terms of that distribution of wealth, in my day, there was a program on TV was called uh, the Millionaire, and The Millionaire, it was a, um, a, a series, a drama series every week. And what it was about was this very rich man, uh, I got John Ferris for Tipton, I think his name. And he would give out a million dollars to some anonymous do-gooding do soul every week. And for us watching it, it was like, oh my God. Oh my God, a million dollars. It was like a million dollars was beyond the moon, was beyond the universe in my generation. And now we live in a time, forget a million dollars, it's a hundred million dollars, a hundred million dollars. And it's a very rare soul who can resist 
that sum of money. And so all of these people, the Barack Obamas, the Ibram X. Kendi's, the Nicole, et cetera, et cetera, I always forget her name. Uh, they're just being bought off. They're just being bought off. No, I'd like to respond in detail to what you're saying. Um, uh, I want to respond to the allegation that they're being bought off. To say that they're being bought off assumes that at any time they had any politics or worldview that had any allegiance to any type of uh, toiler, grassroots, uh, you know, proletariat mass politics or movement in the first place. These people were not bought off. This is a class project. They bought in. They bought in because their class, their class allegiance has always been aligned with the liberal left flank of capital, with the ruling class, because their function is to basically say, we don't want to change capitalism, and we don't want to allow any politics that will interest Black people in changing capitalism. We just want to be 13% of the 1%. In other words, we want a nicer view on the Titanic and just rearrange the debt chairs on it and give us 13% of the chairs. Totally agree with that. But there are people like Angela Davis. You know, she did have a radical politics. I, I didn't agree with her politics. She was just a you know, a pro-Soviet pro Union hack. Uh, however, there was a, a radical uh, aspect to her, in my opinion. So, but in general, I, I henceforth, I'm going to use your expression, they weren't bought off, they bought in. And I think that's correct. The only amendment I would put to that is they bought in under the pretense with their dreadlocks <clears throat> and their X, which they inserted in their name, they they bought in as if they were radicals. Now, that they weren't, yeah, I think you're right. Uh, well, well, this is the thing. Uh, I have a problem with the dispatch of the term radical because it, you know, it's a term that people appropriate and wear like it's a t-shirt, you know what I'm saying? You know, we have the show, we call it This is Revolution Podcast. It is a it is a rhetorical name. None of us are talking about taking up arms to physically challenge the state. But we would like to believe that we are ideologically moving people in a direction where, not necessarily violently, they're trying to change the situation materially to make it a better place for as many people as possible with as much radical politics. But what that means for us is not going out and saying, mow, mow, the bourgeoisie, as many as some of us would like it. That <laughs> means applying the most ideological and effective force on the status quo to compel it to make concessions, concessions to your demands, because it will take too much force to terminate the status quo and rebuild a new force, which will be what some people would consider a real revolution. My position to you is that no one out here is radical. We're not radical. No one on the left, black, white, or other ones is radical because none of us are doing what it really takes to indulge in what would be necessarily the class warfare that would be required to be radical. Well, radicalism has different aspects to it. There is the agenda, the objective, the goal, 
but there's also, to my thinking, there is another aspect to radicalism, and that aspect is mobilizing masses of people. To the extent that you're mobilizing or attempting to mobilize masses of people, which is what the civil rights movement did. What made the civil rights movement such an extraordinary event was how deep, how deep were its roots in the most ordinary people, the most down and out people, the most powerless people, and that the capacity of the movement to bring alive those who have been completely, totally shut out of the political system and had no concept even of being active participants in the transformation of their lives. So even though, even though the objectives, the objectives you could say were not radical, you know, in the, in the language of the old left, the, 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 the Marxist left, those were quote unquote, I'm not gonna restore the language, I'm just gonna use the language for a moment. Those were bourgeois democratic demands, the right to vote, uh, the right to form unions. You know, those are all demands which historically have been seen as within the parameters of the capitalist system. But even as the goals may not have been radical, I still think the, the approach to politics, the attempt to bring in, mobilize, mobilize galvanize, and most importantly, most importantly, enable people to feel the power that they possessed if they managed to act collectively, if they managed to find the right slogans and goals, which were both energizing and substantive and had a real possibility of being realized. Having said that, having said that, I consider, and we can argue and debate, and I hope you will, you know, dispute me if you feel so inclined. Um, go, uh, slogans like a prison abolitionism. Now, you might say that's a radical goal and a radical objective. I think it's the most apolitical slogan humanly imaginable. Mm. It has nothing to do with the real world. That's why Angela Davis, with her friend Gina Dent, go around from one Ivy League school to another, and all the presidents of these schools introduce her with, with total exhilaration, nearly breathless, because, and then there are these all-white elite audiences who come to hear Angela speak about, and Gina Dent speak about, um, Prison abolition. Because it has nothing to do with the real world. Well, I just want you to hold on, hold on, Norm, one second. I just want everyone to know uh, I had to say this before anything else. So we did have UC professors on the show. Norm made sure that never again will any professors <laughs> from the UC system <laughs> come on this show. <laughs> did you did you did you hear what he said, Pascal? I did. I'm try, I would like to respond if you would indulge me. I'm just up to you. Right, look, hey, you know what? You've been yeah, indulged. No, I, I want to address that. Mm -hmm. uh, first of all, I want to. You said something interesting. You said that you know, 
large numbers of white people go to hear all of these quote unquote radical slogans, abolish police, uh, you know, uh, 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 abolish defund the police, Black Lives Matter, so on and so forth. First of all, let me address that. Number one, there is a saying from Harold Cruz that I was uh, educated to by Cedric Johnson, one of my favorite political scientists who I like very much, who I would suggest you read more of because he critiques all of these phenomena. He was my You're professor. What'd you say? No, Cedric Johnson. Cedric Johnson, Johnson, not Cedric Robinson. Cedric oh, Johnson. Cedric Robinson. No, Cedric yeah. Johnson. He was like the, the fellow who ended up at Santa Barbara. No, 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 no. Cedric Johnson teaches at university. Oh, yeah, 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 Cedric yeah, Johnson's yeah. like 50. Cedric yeah. Robinson passed away recently, yeah. two years ago. Cedric Johnson. Yeah, I've, a... read, I've read his stuff. I read it in Jacobin. Okay. I've read his okay. stuff. Yes, okay. There are... As you know, many on the black, well, maybe not no, on the black left, who's taking this on? But that's besides my point. What I'm trying to say is that the quote from Hal Cruz is that one of the problems that the left has with black people is that they think that we're all storming the barricades ready for revolution. In other words, there are white people who consider themselves liberal, progressive, touchy-feely or left or whatever, who fetishize seeing Negroes look like they're ready for the Mau Mau. There might be some who watch this show. I just want to add that I did say this on Saturday. So. Okay. I don't know what kind of perverse, kind of sick, kind of like exotic uh, uh, racial fantasy. Maybe it's like I'm seeing a monkey in a zoo kind of thing it triggers in their mind, but it's an actual reality. I agree with that. But remember, that was part and parcel of what was called the revolutions in the third world. That was part of the 1960s, where many white radicals, genuine radicals like Paul Sweezy and others, uh, thought that the white working class was hopeless, uh, mm -hmm. had been bought off, there was no possibility of revolution here. And so people look to Cuba, to Latin America, to China. Uh, they look to the third world. And the African-Americans were seen as a component of that third world revolution. So it was not necessarily, though I totally agree with you, there is that element of the exotic and um, uh, all the negative. And it's I was frustrating. Part I was part of it. I don't want to ever pretend that I'm holier than thou. I, I'll embarrass myself by saying I still remember when I was around 16 years old, I used to wear this like safari jacket, and here I had a black, black, red, and green button, you know, the black, the, mm -hmm. uh, the, the Garvey button, but mm -hmm. I wore, I was part of all that. And part of the reason I wrote the book was, it's a warning to young people. The book, <laughs> not, the book was not written for my age cohort because I knew they would hate it. I knew, you know, when I started to have second thoughts about things like abortion, I knew I would lose everyone my age cohort. But it was written for 20-year-olds because, as I said, their moment of truth is coming. We're heading in a very bad direction. So I wanted to say, don't do what I did. Don't make those mistakes. So I agree with you. There, was, there has always been that element of exoticizing Black people and thinking all Black people were on the ramparts. But on the other hand, you have to also admit that the great, the greatest transformation in the United States in the post-war era was the civil rights movement. And it did mobilize, unlike any other movement, 
It mobilized the grassroots of society. It was a truly heroic, deeply, deeply inspiring chapter in American history. And one of the odd things about Ibram X. Kendi amid his all his other oddities is he's completely, totally contemptuous of the civil rights movement, thinking it's just it was a complete waste. It didn't transform anything. It was white people who transformed everything during the civil rights era. It was like such a weird, such a well, weird. Well, Abraham, Abraham X. Kendi, I'm sure he wasn't uh, contemptuous of those white people when they, when they were looking at his application to get a job at Boston University, and particularly the ones who were giving him foundation money to finance his little institution at my alma mater, Boston University. So we all, we at This Is Revolution are very, very f familiar with the, I want to talk tough to whitey Negroes who get the fat back and biscuits checks from the foundation world, from the industrial, you know, the, the, the whole uh, non-government non industrial complex, blah, blah, blah. The point that I wanted to continue about those white liberals, leftists, so on and so forth, that fetishize the posturing of black radicalism is that it's not simply about, ooh, let's watch the monkeys in the cage look like they're going to throw bananas at us. It's so attractive. It's that the institutional mechanisms of the foundation world and academia for pretty much 30 years, maybe more, have been financing that and mainstreaming it in the university intentionally largely in areas of black studies. Well, this is what I want to get to, Pascal. Instead, to wait, hold on a second. Instead of having disciplines that actually challenge the material reality and the condition of what black, brown, and poor and working class people are. The large point I'm trying to get to you, Norm, is that I understand why all of this is frustrating and angering to you. But for me, Jason, who are much younger than you are, who are not academics, who've been doing this, this show for a while, and we do a lot of reading, and we talk to a lot of academics, this is part of what we talk on our show, one of our favorite slogans, the 50-plus-year counter-revolution that is a continuing reactionary movement, not in the reactionary like everyone's wearing a Klan T-shirt, but neoliberalization, hyper-marketization, moving away from materialist politics, moving to the right in terms of a type of capitalism that starts in the late 60s from 68 and moving forward, that is a bipartisan consensus to neutralize the New Deal Civil Rights Coalition, which definitely was a liberal bourgeois consensus that was not as radical as the old left of the 30s and 40s. And I understand your affection for the civil rights movement. And it was a significant transformation that did decreased the rate of poverty from black people in 1959, which was 55% to what it is now, which is no more than 19%. So if Ibrahim Kendi, ex Kendi, and a lot of those other Negroes say that, oh, integration is what messed us up, I'd like to know if they want to go back to 1940, when it was 65% of black people were picking cotton or cleaning up white people's houses. Well, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say two things. No, I just, I, I want to hear you, Jason. I just want to, just as a comment, Number one, there were significant substantive changes as a result of the civil rights movement. And number two, we should never forget how deeply heroic and courageous those people were. 
when people like Bob Moses, who attended Hamilton College, and he was a brilliant fellow, he eventually went back and got his philosophy degree from Harvard. But when people like Bob Moses, they came from down uh, from up north, they went down south. What they did was they used to go into these tiny hamlets where the chief of police was in the Ku Klux Klan, the chief judge was in the Ku Klux Klan, every official was in the Ku Klux Klan, and they went from door to door, knocking on people's doors to get them to go down to register to vote. That took real courage. That was so deeply inspiring, the selflessness, the sacrifice that these you know, people like Diane Nash, I mean, I don't know if you know her, but you know, she was just a spectacular figure. And these people were 20 years old. Bob Moses was a little older. He was like 22. Most of them were like 19, 20. Yeah, James Foreman was a little older also. I think he was around 28. But most of them were 19 and 20 year olds or they were 60 and 70 year olds. It was the garbage man. It was the, the Senate, when that in my era was called the garbage man. It was the uh, uh, maids in the homes. I mean, there was real sacrifice, real horror, courage. It was a deeply moving experience. And when I see these so-called radicals piss on them, what did Nick, what did Ibram X. Kendi do? If you read his work, the only thing he does is he claims that he scolded his second grade teacher. That's it. There's no radicalism. There's no history of any kind of activism, sacrifice, courage. And then when I see these people go on democracy now and Amy Goodman is drooling over them, you know, because he's got the dreads. He's got the dreads. You know, it fills me with nausea. Patrice Cullors with her four homes. Well, no, 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 part of there's a problem here. There's a problem here. This part is a problem. There's a major problem. I wrote all these questions. One of the, the major problem that is here, Norm, is that in the eyes of the world, pretty much since 1972 and the Gary Convention, the black left has not existed and does not exist. There is a black left. It's pretty much as much people that you can fit in a diner and a few friends or maybe a college basketball court. But the point of the matter is there is no black left that is recognized outside of the circle of mechanisms and institutions or organizations or publications that we in the black left, whether we be revolutionary nationalists, revolutionary socialists, or simply democratic socialists, or trots or whatever we call ourselves, are put in a space where we're largely talking to people who already agree with us number one and number two we also put in a space where the 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 mainstream liberal political therapists like joanne reed like like uh all of these other people ibrahim x kendi all of these msnbc negroes they don't want the majority of mainstream america to know we exist they don't want black kids to know that there's over a 100 year tradition of black socialists, leftists, and black people challenging capitalism with or without white people in this country. And one of the main reasons why all this woke crap was dispatched was not only to neutralize Bernie Sanders, which was definitely part of it, 
It was to neutralize Bernie Sanders because the people who hired Ta-Nehisi Coates with his Black Panther father, who hire these Negroes, know that if Black people catch on to socialism in America, it's a wrap. Uh, Pascal, you are extremely fired up today. Okay, I, I don't. I want to allow Jason because I, I, I preempted him, so I'm going to uh, defer to you right now. Well, I can't say it now. You, he already asked a fiery thing, and now I got to follow up with the fiery <laughs> thing. Well, you had a question, or I did, but then you know the firebrand spoke, and now the, it's going to seem it's like anticlimactic now. Let's try and see what. Well, happens. Pascal, to your point, that's why I'm having all these damn kids. So there you go. Hey, <laughs> you're making a left of your own. I'm making my own left. Okay. Damn it. <laughs> uh, to Pascal's point about the word woke, the term is making the rounds again. Um, are we wasting our time trying to define this colloquialism? When should we stop trying to engage with what uh, Jean Bajlan on this show calls HR liberalism? Well... I consider HR liberalism a menace, but the good thing is, even though it casts a pull over many a college and university, its actual impact on the students, for example, is I would say pretty marginal. So I'm not gonna speak now about what goes on in corporate life where this HR liberalism obviously has a more or seems to have a more pernicious impact. But for example, for the past three years, I've been doing adjunct teaching, basically a substitute teacher. I've been doing adjunct teaching in the City University of New York. Uh, currently, I teach at Brooklyn College on occasion. And I teach in Hunter College on occasion. And I've had to date about 300 students, I would estimate. And of those 300 students, I would say, and I could say, no, it's not a rough estimate, it's, it's an exact number. Only two, only two of those 300 students expressed any concern about their pronouns to me, one person in emails and another person after class. Uh, this whole obsessiveness with uh, pronouns is, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's an, uh, a top item in, among HR liberals but among the students themselves, obviously, uh, my students are mostly first-generation immigrant families or working-class families. All of them put in solid, you know, 40, 50-hour day, 40, 50-hour week uh, jobs, and also are really burdened with. They all still live at home, and they're really burdened with family responsibilities. So their pronouns is not going to be very high on their uh, daily agenda. So I don't believe uh, that it's had in that respect a uh, huge impact. I would say, on the other hand, it uh, has destroyed. Mm. And I'm using that words, that word with um, uh, uh, consciously using that words. It's destroyed a large number of disciplines in the university. I'll give you an example. I had a student uh, 
who had some troubles with the law and he decided to do a turnaround. And at the end of one class, he came up to me and he just very boldly said, will you be my mentor? Hmm. No student had ever asked me that. I, will, I don't want to tell you, I'll just say he's from the Caribbean. Okay. And no student had ever asked me that. I was like, really? I was dumbfoundedly impressed. So I said, sure, no problem. I asked him what he, he said, I want to be a first class criminal lawyer. I said to him, uh, what's your major? He said, I'm majoring in psychology and in business. I said, those are not majors, those are trades. You need to get serious majors. You should major in philosophy and minor in English because law is mostly about reasoning and it's about writing. So you need to master your logical faculty, that's philosophy, and you have to master your writing ability, that's English. Mm -hmm. around, around a week later, he called me up. He said, I changed my majors. I said, what did you change it to? He said, I'm a philosophy major. I'm an English minor. I said, fine. That sounds like you're on the right path. I said, now we have to find the courses for you because there are a lot of courses which are worthless, but there are also a lot of courses which are solid. So we go, I said, let's go look at the offerings in the English department. I wanted, now you may disagree with me. You're free to disagree with me. I'm never closed to disagreement because I have no monopoly on truth. But I wanted him to get the classical English language because I wanted him to be competitive with the students in the Ivy League. I don't want him to be uh, second class with the students elsewhere. So we go look at the English offerings. Now it happens that I had dinner the other night with two people who doubted me on this question. So you can go yourself, go to, I, I can't name the college because I'll lose my job. I'll tell you afterwards. We went to the English offerings. What were the English offerings? One survey, one survey on the British literature, just a whole survey of British literature, one survey in British literature, one seminar on Shakespeare, a 300 level, which means the senior level on Shakespeare. So what did they offer? Well, they offered Filipino-American lesbian writers. They offered American lesbian writers. They offered women this, gay that, trans this, gay that, like 30 courses, 30 courses, 30 courses. There was one 300 level seminar on Shakespeare. In my day, in my day, you had to take Shakespeare comedies, Shakespeare tragedies, Shakespeare history, histories, you know, like Richard III. That was 100 level. That was like the entry point. And what infuriates me is while these courses are being inflicted, and I mean inflicted on these students in places like City University, you can bet your bottom dollar that when Brianna Joy Gray went to Harvard, she was reading the classics. She was reading the classics. That's why Brianna is so well-spoken. Just listen to her vocabulary. I listen closely. I'm that kind of person, a bit of a pedantic on that point. Uh, she speaks with real elegance because she went to the top schools and those top schools, they make sure their students read the classics. 
And then when you get to our schools, like the city university, they're reading, I'm sorry, it's sheer nonsense. Because you can't have a whole course, a whole course on Filipino American lesbian writers. How many Filipino writers are there in the United States? I, I don't know, but you just pissed off all my baby's moms. <sighs> well, Norm, uh, first of all, I hope you don't think that Jason and I don't have the educate educational qualifications to be eloquent and loquacious. I mean, gosh, because <laughs> we didn't go to Harvard. We're not double Harvard. I mean, I went to a you decent understand what my boy Everybody compliments Brianna Joy Gray. She's very, very clever, and she's a very good arguer. And I say, well, you know, first of all, Brianna's clearly very smart. But secondly, guess what? She went to Harvard Law School, and she was a corporate lawyer for six years. So she learned how to argue. She learned how to, uh, to probe an argument. And I want that for my students. I want that for my students. But then when I open up these catalogs, these disciplines have been destroyed, destroyed by this nonsense, woke, cancel culture, identity politics. And it's very painful. Now, this student, I'm not going to take all the credit, but we carefully went through the catalog. Okay? Now, we found some things. I want to just give you, so to speak, the last page. So this student was looked like he was headed to be put away for, let's just say, a very, very large number of years, okay? Last semester, he got three A's and an A plus in tough courses, tough courses. And this semester, he's headed in the same direction. I asked him how he did in his midterms, and he said he gave me his grades 101, uh, 95 in another. And I said to him, buddy, you never cease to amaze. You know, these people have real potential. And it's very painful for me to see how that potential is being sabotaged, what systematically norm? sabotaged norm. by ridiculous courses, these courses which have zero intellectual quality, courses in which the language with all their X's and their slashes and all of this crap that they put into a sentence, which is like taking a knife to the Mona Lisa, you know, it disgusts me. Well, Norm, let's, uh, let, Norm, uh, first of all, I'm going to make a quote by a very famous scholar of uh, Black thought, Black father of Black history. You may not be familiar with his work. He was a contemporary of Du Bois. His name is Carter G. Woodson. Yeah, I know. I suggest you read The Miseducation of the Negro. Very famous quote from Carter G. Woodson, Harvard has ruined more Negroes than bad whiskey. <laughs> you know, I'm going to tell you something. I, I told you before, I told you before, we put it, we, we end on air. I, I respect, I respect achievement. I respect accomplishment. Now, I know Carter Woodson also went to Harvard. That's why he said that. Yeah. Well, I have to say, there I disagree. I think you get a first-rate education there. We shouldn't be in denial about that. Uh, the boys came out for the better from that education. Cornell West came out for the better. I don't agree with Cornell's politics in many respects. However, 
facts are facts. Extremely smart guy. I mean, his range of knowledge and the depth, not just the range and the depth, is very impressive. And same thing for Brianna Joy Gray. We shouldn't, we shouldn't underestimate the advantages that people get, and not just the advantages in terms of networking. It's the advantages you get in the quality of education. A simple example, if you're at some place, you're going to a place like NYU, you know how many students are in a class? Many classes are six students. There are seven students. In a place like I am, right now I'm teaching a class, it's 36 students. Now you might think, what's the difference? You know what the difference is? When you're in a class of six students, you get to learn how to speak in public. You develop that sense of confidence because you're in a seminar, you're being treated as if you're an adult mind, the professor is engaging in an, a dialogue with you, and you learn how to conduct yourself. No, 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 no. And my students don't get that. I try no. to give everyone a chance to speak once in class, in front of the class, but even that, a semester is 14 weeks. I teach one class a week, and there are 36 students in the class. So how often do you get that kind of opportunity? And we shouldn't, you know, be dismissive of it. It's a no. huge, a huge opportunity. No, no. Some of the greatest rhetorical talents of Black thought in the late 20th century mm -hmm. were, were autodidacts. James true. Baldwin, Malcolm X, one of the greatest intellectuals of the early 20th century, who I would argue would be able to intellectually debate Du Bois down to the ground, was an autodidact, Hubert Harrison. So even I, though I'm a product, even though I'm a product of, I, I didn't go to Harvard. I went to Boston University School of Law. I went to pretty decent schools. Um, I am not one who fetishizes the capacity of institutions that are designed to social engineer the function of capital to keep people in check as mechanisms to create some kind of radical, transformative ideological thinking. I, look, I have no doubt about that. I have no doubt about that. The ruling class knows what it's doing. It has rich experience. It's not really, in in many respects, it's very shrewd, not always, but it has a deep confidence. You bring in people, they sound radical, and they're going to you know, have their, in my day, it was the dashiki and the afro. And then after being there, you have the opportunity, 99 out of 100, joined the ruling class, however militant they sounded when they were undergraduates. In my years, the only real one who stuck his guns, you may know him, he goes by the name of Lawrence Hem. He's the head of this organization called the People Organized for Progress in Newark, POP. Uh, brilliant guy, uh, but he remained faithful to his roots. But in general, the ruling class is, knows Okay, let them sound off as undergraduates, but once they have that degree and they know the doors of Wall Street are open to them, the doors of that 1% are open to them, yes, it's true, they will sell out. And, I, and, and that's a, it's a rational calculation on the part of the ruling class. But having said that, having said that, it's very striking to me that a lot of the great figures 
whether it's a Frederick Douglass who was an autodidact, but we must remember he was an autodidact who really mastered the English language. It was basically, as I understand, it was he read Robert Burns, he read uh, Dickens, he read, of course, the Bible, and uh, his rhetoric was extremely impressive. Dr. Martin Luther King was, well, just that. He was Dr. Martin Luther King. And even if you read, for example, Letter from a Birmingham Jail, Letter of Birmingham Jail is studded with references to all the classical philosophers as he's trying to justify that being King, trying to justify why it's right to break a law, because that was a big issue then. On what basis, you know, people were saying to the civil rights movement, they were saying to Martin Luther King, you want us to enforce Brown v. Board of Education. You want us to enforce the law. Then why are you counseling people to break the law? And so King goes all the way back to Plato, to St. Augustine, and to, um, well, many others. Uh, he knew the classics. He knew the classics. And then you take somebody like Du Bois, excuse me, you take someone like Paul Robeson. He wrote a very tiny little autobiography called Here I Stand. But there were parts of it to me which were quite illuminating. His father, who was a preacher, a reverend, was a real taskmaster. You had to learn the Latin and you had to learn the Greek. And you couldn't read any of the Latin or Greek classics in translation. Robeson describes how he sat down with his father and he had to read everything in the original. And he said, I took four years of Latin in high school and I took three more years of Latin in college and then I took three years more of Greek. So to me, and we, of course, we know Paul, you know, um, Cornell West, he graduated the degree in philosophy, no small, you know, that's not small change from Harvard in three years. And his masteries, it's very impressive. Uh, he's way beyond me. I mean, I, I can't, I, I lose him 99% uh, of the time when he's giving his talks. Um, but we should underestimate the value of that education and how much you know, you take someone like Malcolm X, as you know, Malcolm X deeply regretted the fact that he didn't have a, a classical education. It was a source of deep lamentation to him. He did his best to compensate for it. And of course, he was quite successful at compensating for that lack of education, but he felt it. He felt it. He wished he had had that opportunity of having a quote unquote classical education. And so it deeply pains me when this woke culture is destroying that classical education, not because I'm wedded to dead white European males, as they were called in my day, dwem, we call them, dead white European males, not because I'm wedded to them, but because they give you a level of competence, competence. So, one thing that people comment about Brianna Joy Gray, I, I don't want to keep coming back to her, but I don't, I'm not a big web watcher, but I do watch her. They say she's unflappable. You know, she'll have people on who have called her the nastiest things. She never gets excited. She always stays calm because she has great confidence in her intellect. She knows I just have to listen. I can dissect the argument. I've got the training. I was a corporate lawyer. I know how to dissect arguments and I can prevail. And one of the things I like most about Brianna Joy Gray, nobody treats her as a black woman. 
they treat her as a formidable intellect. We've been I've been on her show several times, Don. Yeah, they treat her as a formidable intellect. And the fact that she got past the identity issue, black woman. No, it's not black woman. It's smart person. It's smart person. And then and it's no small part that comes from the training. And uh, just to go back to where I said there has been, in significant respects, the woke, what you call HR liberalism, has been marginal. You know, the students, they don't take it seriously. They roll their eyes. Those students are extremely respectful of each other uh, and all of their different orientations, this, that, and the other. It's a very moving sight. It's a very moving sight. I mean, I, you know, I'm old enough to remember the old days. And now in my class, as I say, it's mostly first generation, uh, either immigrant families or it's working class families. And one of the things that deeply touches me is the solidarity, the solidarity. What do I mean by that? A student gets up in front of class. I said, I'd like to give everybody a chance just to experience what people in the Ivy League experience daily in their seminar classes. I want my students to learn how to think on their feet and uh, and feel develop that confidence and self-confidence. So when students come up, as you can imagine, it's going to be a mixed performance. Some are good, some are weaker, okay? But when anyone finishes, however weak their performance, the class always spontaneously applauds. You know, it's very touching, that feeling of solidarity. And that's what gives me hope. I saw the same solidarity during the George Floyd demonstrations. They were, you would say, they started out 50% black, 50% white. After two weeks, it was more like 75% white, 25% black. But I felt the spirit of real solidarity there. And it wasn't the patronizing white solidarity of my era, you know, the white radicals, yours truly included, where was, there was always the kind of noblesse oblige, or as you correctly and I appreciate candidly said, the exoticism of black people. No, this is not exoticism. The George Floyd demonstrations were not exoticism. They were solidarity by people who, yes, blacks suffered more, but the white middle class had hollowed out and many of the whites were just a notch over the blacks, you know, in places like New York City. They're living in the same places. The roommates are mixed. You know, you'll have a black person, a white person, a gay person, a trans person, uh, very common in New York now. I'm sure Jason can attest to that, you know, in places like Greenpoint, Bed-Stuy. It's a very mixed, it's the, the new problem, you know, what your generation calls the precariat. And whites are part of it. And there's that solidarity. Uh, there's, there are many things, even though time is of the essence, there are many things to be hopeful about. And as we're hopeful about certain developments, we also have to be, in my opinion, we have to be, un, we have to be unabashedly critical of things which are either having a destructive or distracting effect on what could be a positive development.
Well, I like it. Let me let me take some time. Wait, time time out, Pascal. Before you take time, we're over an hour, so you can hold that for the champagne room. Uh, we've gone on quite an hour and fifteen minutes. We're fifteen minutes over. Tucson, you have some super chats for us. I do have some super chats for us. One moment, let me pull them up. Second, hold on. I got starstruck for a minute. What happened? Okay. <laughs> I got him. Um, Ian Aldenson, Aldenstein mm-hmm. asks, I'm curious what Norman thought of his convo with Robin Kelly and Barbara Smith. They seem to find common common ground, but there still seems to be a difference of emphasis with their intersectionality. Love the Luxembourg quote. I don't know if we addressed that already. Do you feel no. we did, I, that was one of the questions that I had that we didn't get a chance to address, but I did want to ask Norm uh, about uh, that debate. I mean, I'm going to use inverted quotes when I say debate with uh, DG Kelly and, and Barbara Smith. Um, there, there was a moment where you got into the uh, African-American studies program. We were talking about this a little bit off air. Um, and you called out the lack of a black working class history in the curriculum and, uh, Kelly and Smith defended the lack of a, a black working class, uh, history in that curriculum. Um, you know, you pretty much said it without saying it, that this was a bit of a class project that, um, that, that, that curriculum and y- Sadly, I don't think you got a chance to actually speak your piece because you kept getting interrupted because of the fact that your whole thing is really attacking this class project. Um, so I want to give you the the floor kind of to to uninterruptedly speak your piece about the lack of a black working class history in this in this uh, studies course that was so uh, highly maligned by uh, Ron DeSantis. Okay, first of all, what is identity politics? Is it, a, is it uh, in contradiction to the classical left politics? Not in my opinion. The classical left politics going back 100 years or more, there was always concern about special kinds of oppression that were not reducible to class oppression. That's why, as I'm sure you know, there were huge bodies of literature, scholarship and agitational literature devoted to things like what were called back then, the woman question, the Negro question, the Jewish question, meaning forms of oppression, which were not automatically and easily and simply reducible to class oppression. So the identity, uh, the, the, the idea of identity politics goes back to the left or the, you know, the socialist Marxist, whatever you want to call it, left uh, already a century ago. So that being said, what is identity politics in our current, in our current moment identity politics is 
the identity aspect, the woman question, the Negro question, the Jewish question, the identity aspect, but the class aspect has been lopped off. So the class, if you read Robin DiAngelo, you read Ibram X. Kendi, you read Ta-Nehisi Coates, there are a few stray fragments. You can count them on three fingers of one hand. There are a couple of stray fragments referring to class oppression. So, and those are just, as you can imagine, token mentions. The class element has been lopped off. And what you've, you guys have been saying all along, it's basically a class project of those who want to be, who want a place among the 1%. Now, that will bring me to that curriculum. The, the boogeyman of that curriculum is said to be Richard DeSantis or types like him who are trying to suppress the radical core of African-American history or African-American studies. However, in my opinion, the problem with that curriculum was not the pressures exerted from without by the Richard DeSantis types. The problem was from within, namely the curriculum as it was conceptualized and as it was articulated, the over, you know, one of the uh, eminence grise, you know, the person standing above it all is Henry, was Henry Louis Gates. Mm. Uh, the problem was that it was an identity politics curriculum, which meant emphasis on identity stripped of class, except one class. There is that section on quote the, uh, of the curriculum entitled the growth of the black middle class. <laughs> Bingo. And, and that's what they're concerned about. And in that section, what do you think they talk about? They talk about the disparities, of how course. angry they are that rich whites are richer than rich blacks. And we have to end that disparity so rich black people are just as rich as rich white people. So that was my main disagreement with um, R.D. Kelly. I don't think the issue, in my opinion, was not primarily the conservative suppressive forces from without. It is that the curriculum was an articulation of what you call the class project, namely identity politics stripped of class. Well, should we go, Jason? Yeah, we got it. We got to wrap it up. It's we, we gave you guys 23 minutes of free champagne. So I hope you guys appreciated the show. Last time we had Norm on, we talked for three hours. It was a Saturday free show. 
Um, we had no idea where the show was going to go. Um, definitely Pascal and I looked at each other on the screen and said, this was a fun, quick ride. And, but, <laughs> uh, we didn't get quote unquote canceled. And people liked that show. It was a good show. It was a good show. Like this was a good show. I'm sure people will agree and disagree with things. If there's anything you guys have to say about what you heard today, especially if you're rewatching the show later, leave a comment. Let us know what you have to say about what was said here. I think Pascal and Norm, you guys knocked it out of the park. Nick. Oh, sorry, wrong button. Here it comes. <laughs> that Norm doesn't think that my Boston University School of Law Education makes me intellectually eloquent or sophisticated enough. Look, Norm was trying to make sure Brian look, Norm, look, let's Norman, just let's be honest. Let's Norman be honest. wants Norman wants everybody to get a chance. I want to see everybody get a chance. Listen, and the Brian, bar, and the he was killing my chance with Brianna's with the chance you're killing Norm. You know it, it bothers it bothers me when I see uh, the second rate education my students get because our institutions are so financially strapped. And it bothers me when these woke people advocate for all of this woke curriculum for others while they they send their students to the best schools uh, their children, excuse me, they send their be- their children to the best schools and get a classical education. That annoys the heck out of me. Well, I do agree with you that Brianna Dregory is very brilliant and very intelligent. And I agree that Norm she, ha- she has me. she has the innate gifts, but she also has, and it's no you know no shame to say, she has the training. She has the training. She she has so much confidence. You know, I don't know if you ever watch her on the hill with Ronnie Suave, Robbie Suave is, you know, very nice fellow. But sometimes I feel like she, she's a Sherman tank pulling right over him. Well, look, Norm, you just you're you player hated me all out of the Brianna Joy Gray sweepstakes. You know, I was I thought I was there because of my appearance on her show on Valentine's Day. And all of a sudden, you know, you come on here and then bam, blow the spot up. And now it's just, you know, it's just. I know my brother. And so I can't, you know. <laughs> you know what Jimmy Cliff said. You can do it if you really want. If you try, try. If you really try. <laughs> well, if you guys haven't got it already, Norm has a book out right now on Sublation Media. It's called I'll Burn That Bridge When I Get To It. Wherever you were watching. A lot of people told me don't publish it. And a lot of people said it was going to be a bomb. But it's still early in the game. It's only a month and a half out. But the reaction, even to my surprise, has been uh, quite positive. And I felt like, okay, this time, like when I wrote The Holocaust Industry, I was warned. Uh, But I think I read the tea leaves correctly that people had reached the point of being fed up. You could feel the winds shifting. You know how you could tell? Hmm. 
because woke people, super woke people, like Whoopi Goldberg, are now attacking the uh, woke culture. You know, she started to criticize and the view these books that were being edited so as to take out all the racist, sexist, blah, blah, blah. And she says, what are you doing? This is our history. Why are you trying to change it? Now, of course, Whoopi always has her finger in the air and she knows the winds are shifting uh, and there's a, uh, a, a an increasing, I won't, there's a, on one end there's hostility, but there's also just an increasing um, frustration with this cancel culture and where it's going. And so I felt like, you know, the book landed at the right moment. That people who told me don't publish it, one person, a close friend for 30 or 40 years said, don't publish it, it's going to destroy your career. Uh, people won't respect you anymore. Two of my former publishers refused to, to touch it with a barge pole, one of whom was deeply insulting to me, deeply insulting to me. Uh, and notwithstanding, uh, it seems like the reception has been at least a certain amount of, let's call it, curiosity and willingness to listen. Disagree with me? Fine. But a willingness to listen. So I'm, uh, I, I'm uh, consoled by that fact. Well, I did a program, you know, with Sabi, uh, your okay. friend. That's not my friend. Oh, she's not <laughs> your friend? No. Uh, okay, I did a program with her. I did uh, a program two nights ago with Glenn Greenwald, and I'm going to do a longer one with him on Friday. Um, and no, you're getting, you're getting invited to all the hot left. You're, you're making the rounds. You're making the rounds, man. You black yeah, power media. Hey, so shout out to Glenn Greenwald, even though we don't really <laughs> talk to the guy. He he uh, he said that that conversation that we had on the show a couple years ago was one of the most important conversations he had heard. And someone had, he's like, mm -hmm. I'm not listening to this three hour show. And he said, he said his friend sent it to him and said, after you hear it, you're going to be mad it wasn't longer. And Greenwald said, you know what? You're right. I was mad it wasn't longer. Yeah, there's a certain there's a certain Negro on Facebook who thinks that Glenn Greenwald is part of the Red Brown Alliance, and the fact that he likes TIR TIR means that we are trying to uh, court the MAGA communists. <laughs> I'm dead I'm serious. I'm sorry. I literally, I literally just wrote about that. Literally. I'm dead serious. Literally. Did you did you forward in my article? When you when you don't you know when you're black and on the left and your politics is not stuck in 1972, sucking black power kneecaps, people have a problem with you. Well, look, there's a lot of confusion now, and the confusion is a big problem because we're headed towards you know uh, from everything you're listening, everything we're listening to, we're heading towards a war with China, and that's no joke. And judging, by, and judging by the reaction of the so-called left to the war with Ukraine, there's a lot, a lot of confusion in what's called the left. Yeah. You have to look at conservative and right-wing people to get any sense on the Ukraine. When you have to look at who I, he's a personal friend of mine, personal friend who I like a lot, but John Mearsheimer would never describe himself as a leftist. He's a West Point graduate, and he's pretty conservative in his impulses. When you have to look to John Mearsheimer, or you have to look at to these right-wing generals to figure out what's going on in the Ukraine, 
And if you have the left, what's called the left, people like Bernie Sanders saying, quote, I trust Joe Biden's judgment on Ukraine. We have a very big problem. So, you know, MAGA communists, yeah, there's a lot of confusion. And we don't have the luxury of allowing history to slowly unfold and to make sense of what's going on. We have to act. You have I'll, to act I'll fast. I'll, I'll, I'll email you my, uh, my article I just wrote on MAGA communism. I, I will definitely want to read it. I'll I, definitely I, I, want to read it. It just came out. It just came out uh, Monday. So I'll send it to you. Thank okay. you, Norm. Wherever nice you're watching time. and nice listening time. to the show, there's links in the description to Norm's current book. I'll burn that bridge when I get to it. And we will see you guys in the champagne room. Thank you, Norm. Have a very good night. My I'm going to I'm going to hit you up tomorrow, Norm. Okay. I want to make it to New York, both of you. Uh, I live down by Coney Island. The weather's uh, warming up. I go for a jog or a walk every day there. So you can join me on one of those days. Can Pascal walk with a mint julep and his parasol? That's the only thing that matters. <laughs> <laughs> Whenever you guys have conversations like that, I feel really left out. <laughs> Aww. I, I, I feel as forlorn as looking for a bathroom at a double <laughs> <laughs> oh, Well, it's good to know we are the only podcast that makes sure Norm Finkelstein doesn't leave without laughing. Thank you, guys. Bye-bye. Okay. Pascal? Bye. Tucson, we are out. Out.